Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 55. There's no biographical information in the ascription of this psalm, but some of the specific words and phrases in it suggest that it was written during the rebellion of Absalom and David's flight from Jerusalem. What is absolutely certain is that David wrote this psalm in circumstances of severe distress due to persecution. What is also clear is that some of the people who were persecuting him had at one time been close and trusted friends. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the brief ascription and then proceeding to verse 1. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. It can seem sometimes like God is further away and less available in our times of prayer. The wise believer understands that this feeling is in you and not in God. This feeling has a great deal to do with circumstances and sentiment and has nothing to do with reality. In reality, God is where he has always been. And his accessibility is not affected by the feelings and circumstances of the day. David knew that, and so David pressed through this all-too-common experience. Plumer says here, When God seems to hide himself from believers and their supplications, they should regard it as a trial of faith and perseverance and not as a discouragement to prayer. Closed quote. That is such good counsel. God may seem distant, but that is just one of the many tests and trials of faith that a true believer must press through. We must never hide from God when we are disappointed or hurt. We must do as David does here. We must press through to God. We must bundle up all our wounds and bruises and barge boldly into the throne room of our Heavenly Father, there to unpack them in the lap of Almighty God. This is our privilege as covenant children, and we should make regular and appropriate use of it in our trials. Verse 2, attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. David is physically affected by his spiritual and relational pain, and that's okay. He doesn't swallow it. He doesn't sublimate it. He takes it to God and he lets it out. Good on him. Human beings, no less than animals, are entitled to their natural responses and reactions. Job makes that point to his friends. They're actually a little bit taken aback by Job's appearance when they initially find him. 
He is sitting on an ash heap, scraping his boils with a piece of broken pottery. He is clothed in rags. He has a shaved head. And, and the brother looks like something out of a horror movie. He is feeling his sorrow and showing his sorrow in a way that these rich, dignified, older men thought was borderline inappropriate. But Job defends his right to moan, as David does here. He says in Job 6.5, Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? If an animal has the right to express his reaction to physical stimuli, then how much more do I? Listen, my friends, we are entitled to the natural expressions associated with the human condition. Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Job wept and sighed and groaned over the loss of his children. And David moaned over the pain of personal betrayal. These are entirely appropriate human reactions. Being a person of faith does not require you to suppress all natural emotion. I love what David Dixon says here. He says, It is not a thing inconsistent with godliness to be much moved with fear in times of danger. Natural affections are not taken away in conversion, but sanctified and moderated, closed quote. That is so helpful. Becoming a Christian doesn't make you a robot. It makes you a man or a woman who feels pain and who mourns loss, but not without hope, not without recourse. That's the sweet spot, and David knew it well, and David is working his way towards that in his prayers. That's exactly what we should do. Verse 6, and I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. David has expressed his pain, and now he is being honest about his desires. He wants to chuck it all and run away. Again, this is good honesty. It's good for David, and I think it's good for us as well. Isn't it helpful to know that even the heroes of faith occasionally wanted to quit and just run away and live in a hole somewhere? I take some solace in that. Every parent and every pastor knows this feeling. There are days when you entertain an escapist fantasy. Oh, that I had wings and could fly away to a Caribbean resort and lie on the beach and write blogs for a living. Every pastor has entertained that fancy for at least a second or two. Every parent has thought about ditching it all, cashing in their savings, and living out their lives in a small hut on the beach of Bora Bora. Every Christian has thought of giving up evangelism, giving up public faith, and going underground away from the judgment, the mockery, and the sheer strain of it all. It's no sin to feel like that every once in a while. I imagine that every Soldier standing in the line of battle has thoughts of running away. Thinking that is not a sin. Feeling that is not a sin. But actually doing it, actually running away, actually abandoning your post and your friends and your family and your mission, well, of course, that would be a sin. And you would regret it. And David doesn't do it. He thinks it, he feels it, he expresses it, but he doesn't do it. He is pressing through this feeling 
in the presence of the Lord through believing prayer. That's a good model. Look at verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. The world is not the way I would want it to be, Lord. My life is not as I would want it to be, Lord, but I am looking to you for justice. I am looking to you for judgment and decision and recompense. I am trusting that you will sort it out at the end. David goes on to explain why these particular circumstances are so troubling to him. Verse 12, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Scholars often assume here that David is speaking about Ahithophel. In, in fact, some translations actually insert that name. The Chaldee translation, for example, says, And thou, O Ahithophel, a man like me, the teacher who taught me and made known to me wisdom. So, scholars and Bible readers have long assumed the identity of David's former friend. But in truth, the name does not appear here in the text. Ahithophel, if that is truly who David is referring to here, was David's mentor and chief advisor, and he turned on David during the rebellion of Absalom. Now, if, if we are reading the genealogies correctly, then it appears that Ahithophel was actually Bathsheba's grandfather, and that may explain the root of bitterness that grew up in his heart and destroyed his relationship with David. The rebellion of Absalom was, of course, many years after the affair with Bathsheba, but nevertheless, Ahithophel appears to have held a grudge and to have worked behind the scenes for many years to bring about David's downfall. All that time, he appeared to be David's friend, and now David is crushed to learn the truth. His friend had been his enemy, his counsel had been deception, and his love had been a ruse. That is hard to receive, and David takes that hurt to the presence and counsel of the Lord. Verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Some of us struggle with this kind of imprecatory language. We might even feel that it is sub-Christian, but in truth, it is no different than what we find in Romans 12, 19. There the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul, writing in the New Testament to Christians, says, Don't seek your own revenge. Don't plot murder on your beds. Just entrust your cause to the Lord. He will sort it out. Nobody gets away with anything. So you just keep your eye on the ball. Keep doing what he told you to do and leave matters of justice and recompense to the Lord. That is New Testament counsel. And it is no different than what David is doing here. He is entrusting his cause to God. 
He isn't saying, help me kill Ahithophel. He is saying, pay them back, Lord, for the evil they have plotted against me. Do justice to them, Lord. Vindicate me, Lord. I entrust my case to your higher courts and your superior wisdom. That's not sin. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to tell God what has been done to you and to ask him to make it right in this life or the next. God, make it right. Verse 17, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. Plumer says here, to pray frequently is to pray fervently. I like that, and I resonate with that. I'm a, I'm a morning guy when it comes to my times of personal devotion, but I also have learned by experience that I leak throughout the day. I, I see God and reality quite clearly at 6 o'clock in the morning when I'm all by myself. But then by noon or 3 p.m. or 8.30 p.m. when it's time to put the kids to bed, a lot of sin and me has crept back back onto my windshield, and I am not seeing the world like I was earlier that morning. My peace and power leak, and so this frequent turning to God in prayer throughout the day seems like very useful counsel to me. David prays three times a day, morning, noon, and night. I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Verse 18, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. Make no mistake, friends, if you walk with the Lord, then you will do battle with many enemies. Some of them will you see, but many of them you will not see. But take heart. There are also many helpers who stand beside you. I love that story in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16, when the servant of Elisha went out one morning and saw that they were completely surrounded by the enemy. He went to Elisha and said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Isn't that good? There are many arrayed against us, but also many standing for us and with us. If you only see the former and not the latter, then you won't be able to pray like David prayed. David prayed with honesty and faith. Verse 19, God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. David marvels here that Ahithophel, who was known throughout the land as a wise man and a trusted counselor, would be so foolish as to violate his covenant and oppose the Lord's anointed. That is short-sighted. David is confident that his decision to trust in the Lord will prove the wiser course of action in the end. Verse 22, 
Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. I appreciate Tim Keller's take on this verse. He says the result, the result of casting your burden on the Lord, is not that God takes all troubles away, but that he sustains you, gives you strength to handle them. If we are in a storm and we pray to him, he may still the storm, as per Mark 4.39, or he may instead help us, as he did Peter, to walk through the storm without sinking, as per Matthew 14.27-31, closed quote. David's life ought to remind us that being in covenant relationship with God does not guarantee smooth sailing, anything but. What it does guarantee, however, is the presence of the Lord within the storm. Therefore, the wind and the waves don't really matter. We shouldn't look at those. We should look to the Lord. And David does, verse 23. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. To say this is to say, I leave all in God's hands. He will do what is right. He will judge the wicked and recompense the righteous. I will lay down in peace. David has prayed his way to the place of trust and peace, and he leaves us this psalm so that we may do the same. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 